Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. I'm your host, Josh Miles. On today's episode, I catch up with Ian Paget of Logo Geek. Ian is employed with a full-time job at an agency and also has time to run his side practice of Logo Geek as a freelance logo designer, blogger, and podcaster. So make yourself a note to check out the Logo Geek podcast after you listen to this episode, of course. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Ian Paget. Okay, guys, welcome all the way from Manchester, UK, Mr. Ian Paget. Ian is a logo designer and regular podcast guest. He's been featured in Logo Lounge, Design Taxi, and more. And as I just learned, I was a little embarrassed to admit this to Ian, but I just figured out he's also the host of his own podcast called The Logo Geek. So Ian and I met uh, just over Twitter, had exchanged some comments back and forth. And I looked a little bit into him and I said, Hey, you should be on the show. So Ian, welcome to obsessed with design. Hey Josh, it's a real honor to be on your show. So thank you. Oh, absolutely. Anytime we can have somebody with a cool accent on the show, I think that is totally bonus points for us, <laughs> especially with us, uh, you know, boring American accents. Like this is, this is I don't know. Good. Interesting to me. I'm the one with the boring accent. here. <laughs> 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 well, maybe you can tell us not so much your, your British origin, but um, tell us a little bit about your origin story as a designer and how you found your way into this world of brand and logo design. Wow. Okay. So I would say my entry point is probably quite different to other people um, because it's something that I've always wanted to do um, from a child. Um but I didn't go to university, so I, I needed to find a different entry point. And I do feel to some extent that I was in the right place at the right time. So I'll try and explain it without talking for hours on end. Um, <laughs> so as a kid, I was that kid that always loved art. Like um, I was always entering into those competitions um, and, uh, you know, winning uh, like the uh, the school uh, art competitions and so on. And um I, I do I do recall from quite a young age people um, mentioning that this was something I had a talent for. Um, so as I got older um, and started, uh, you know, to um, work out what what I wanted to do with, with my life, I was very keen on doing something creative. Um, so in in terms of like qualifications, here we we have like A levels. And then after A-levels, you basically go on and, and you do um, like further study. Um, so my A-levels was in um, art. And then, um, yeah, about 18, um, I, I left um, study at that point. And the, the, the main reason for that is like, I have quite a big family. I'm the youngest of uh, 10 children combined um, with um, two parents like my my parents met later in life and um I do recall uh kind of bringing it up with my dad when I was about 18 and he's like no you're not going to university like none of the others needed to go and they've been successful so I I kind of took that I, ne I never felt the need to argue it so that's the direction I took so my first job um it was as a print finisher so this this was kind of something that I thought oh this is quite creative it's working in in um 
a graphics related job, but rather being on the end that I am now, I was I was on the other end of the spectrum where I was taking like the printed um, panels and essentially working as an assistant to this other guy that was putting uh, you know the printed graphics through like encapsulations. And um, I don't know if you know these big like three by three pop ups, these pop up systems, mm-hmm. exhibition shows. Yeah, that was what I was doing, and it was in that job that. I was exposed to um, like this team of art workers. All they were literally doing was taking photos and kind of cleaning them up. But I found that fascinating. And I was like, I wouldn't mind uh, trying that. So I, I do recall asking a few questions at that point. Um, but I, I soon found this wasn't the right job for me. Um, I cut my finger quite badly. And I, I thought, you know, I, I, I know that I don't want to do this in my life. At that point, I, I was only about 18. I was still living with um, parents. So financially, I was very safe. So I, I made my mind up to hand in, my, hand in my notice. And I kind of went on this mission to find whatever job I could, you know, to keep me going. And, and at that point, I, I spoke to one of my friends. I ended up um, finding a, a warehouse job. And it kind of did the job, right? I needed the money. I was 18. It was close to where um, I lived. So it seemed ideal at that point. And uh, little did I know that it was actually that opportunity that kind of took me on the path that I've been on now. I was working in that job for about two months. And I had the, the CEO. He came down and went, Ian, I understand that you're quite good at drawing. And I'm like, yeah. And he said, okay. And then walked off. <laughs> I didn't really know what that meant. <laughs> but yeah, probably about a week later, um, one of the girls come down from the office and said, oh, Ian, do you have a moment? So they, they took me up and, and they basically offered me this job uh, within like this, this admin team. Uh, it was called Product Sport and Education. And, and within that team, a small percentage of that job was creating posters so this company, it was, it was a medical company, and within that team, they were the team that were creating all the brochures, posters, anything that was needed um, for the uh, national sales team to basically sell the product. In that job, I just basically sat down, never used a Mac before. It had Illustrator on there, it had Quark Express, and, and they asked me to put a leaflet together. And um, yeah, they, they, they gave me some very basic pointers and I literally just sat down and started um, trying things. Uh, I, I, find, I found from the very beginning that Illustrator was very um, self-explanatory. So what I started doing is uh, I, I kind of picked the, the pen tool and started clicking. But yeah, what happened in that job is about 90, 90% of it was admin based and I was you know, an 18, 90 year old, very shy kid. So I was rubbish on the phone. I wasn't the best at any of the admin stuff because I didn't really know what I was doing. But they found, oh yeah, Ian seems to be able to do these posters quite well. So um, there was three of us and uh, yeah, all the all the posters and uh, brochures and stuff, they kept passing over to me. So I was really excited. And uh, what I did is, uh, Every, every night I went home and I kind of had this cheap rubbish computer that I bought and uh, had internet access. And I just started finding the uh, tutorial videos. So I sit there at home every evening. I learn something. 
I'll go into work the next day, try it out. And what ended up happening is that I created a, um, a double-sided A4 leaflet. And it was all print ready, all set up. I had a little bit of guidance from uh, a local print company. And um, yeah, it was done. And I thought, yeah, okay, I'm happy with that. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't realize, that team, what they actually did is uh, when they planned out a brochure or leaflet, what they was actually doing was just planning it out very basically with the internal like management team. And then they would send it off to a freelancer. I didn't know that. (laughs) So what happened is, if you can imagine, I was on minimum wage at that point. And they found this guy, they plucked him, plucked him out from this warehouse team and plugged him in in this job. And I was able to print ready artwork without it going to that freelancer. So I was in this unique opportunity where they found me. There was obviously spending a lot of money on a freelancer. And they saw some potential in me. So um, what they did is they offered me some uh, training with this local print company so that I could go there, ask questions. And it kind of went from there. From that point, uh, that team evolved like within the space of five years. It went from being a 90% admin role to a team of three of us that was working on all of the company brochures, um, exhibition materials, photography, illustration, literally anything that that company needed, it was coming through three of us rather than being outsourced. So yeah, it was was an exciting time. And um, I learned so much in that role, like through self-learning and through mini training sessions that we was doing with different people. And uh, yeah, it was it was it was at about the five year point that I I hit a ceiling where I, I, I got to a point where I was basically redoing my own work. Um, I felt like I learned a lot. I had a substantial portfolio. So I, I thought, OK, I'm going to start looking for a new job. And, and that's when I I moved on uh, to the company that I'm at now. And I, I've been there for about must be coming up to about nine years. And I, I immediately went into a lead position in that job. And uh, yeah, I've been really lucky at this e-commerce agency to have been, been able to work on some really big names. So I've, uh, for example, I've just worked with Barclay Card on one of their new uh, websites. So it, it's been um, really cool. You've got to be one of the first or maybe only people that I've ever talked to who started out in a design career by going through a warehouse job. <laughs> <laughs> really right place, right time. <laughs> it's just, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that's ever a path that someone would say, well, the great way to get into the creative world is go work in a warehouse. And then you just wait for them to offer you a design project. Uh, I, I think um, like there's probably a lot of people that are listening that are pretty desperate to um, work in some kind of graphics role. They, they might even have former qualifications but they don't know how to get into the industry. And I think the outcome from my story is that within every like office-based job, there are these opportunities there um, because, you know, if you can imagine in a where in, sorry, in, in, a, in an office environment, people need um, PowerPoint presentations. They need brochures and posters. 
And I think if you're able to oh, yeah. demonstrate within that team that you have those capabilities, there's going to be the opportunity there. And I personally think that, you know, if it's a decent sized office, they're crazy not to make use of your talents. And I just think, you know, with that, you're able to build up a body of work, um, which can then, you know, take you on, you know, to an, another uh, more focused role. Like is I, th- I think it's worth adding as well that along with that journey, so that, that five years of that company that I mentioned, along the side of that, I was doing a lot of side projects. So I was really practicing lots of different things. So at that point, I was I was doing a lot of like movie posters, CD covers, um, logos, all sorts of different things just to play around with it. Um, so it's that sheer body of work that I was able to do in that admin role versus you know things I was doing on the side I had so much work that when I did go into you know a a role that's more like a branding agency I was able to show all this stuff and just demonstrate that I've I've got this ability that they can nurture. Mm -hmm. Today you're working still within the agency as as part of your gig and then you're doing your your logo geek stuff as kind of a side project is that correct um i think it's worth briefly explaining how that's come about so um one of my main things now is logo geek and the way that that started is it was probably about uh, four years ago five years ago around that sort of time when i decided I want to work on like short term creative projects at home. And I decided mm-hmm. hey, I've got quite an interest in, in logos and I'd like to learn more about that. It's, it's an area that I enjoy and, and an area that I, I felt at that point I had some talent for that I could possibly nurture. So I've always done these side projects just for fun, just as a way to kind of practice and learn. But where that's kind of grown is that over the last sort of five years, I've gradually been working on this thing. So if you can imagine, I was taking on projects at the beginning, just fun. So for, you know, friends or family that, that needed a logo, I was doing the free. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of got to this point where I started to build up a, you know, a very crude website where I was just throwing content on there. I was um, throwing any like portfolio pieces as I created a logo, I was putting them on that website. So at those very early stages, and just, you know, just make this really clear, this was just fun, just to practice. Anything I was doing, I was just putting it on this website and kind of just playing around with it just for fun. I never imagined that anyone would actually ever go on there. <laughs> um, but what happened is, uh, you know, the, the outcome of doing this little, little bit of work here and there and, uh, you know, like adding blogs and case studies and images and so on onto the website, I got to this point one day when someone I didn't know stumbled on this website. I never expected that. (laughs) I've never had the plan to go freelance. I've always uh, saw in my life that I would kind of um, advance on through different roles and potentially end up at some kind of branding agency. Mm -hmm. What happened was I got this uh, first project uh, from a real client, someone I didn't know. And um, I got this extra pocket money. So I'm like, yeah, this is cool. (laughs) Yeah. 
I was able to, do, you know, just sp- spend a little bit of time on the side and take on these projects. So it grew as as time went on. I, I got more projects. I started to increase the price. And, um, you know, fast forward about three, four years, yeah, about the three year point. By spending so much time on the site, you know, posting work as I was doing it, um, I started to charge more. I was posting blogs and case studies on there every day. My website was performing really well on Google. Um, and also, I, at the same time, I was working on social media too. So my uh, Logo Geek Twitter account was performing incredibly well too. So I got to this point where I had this full-time uh, creative director role that was very demanding. But then I also suddenly had this fun side project that suddenly wasn't that much fun anymore because it was incredibly, incredibly, um, I guess, quite stressful because I was getting a lot of emails through my website in terms of inquiries, but also people that had found me through social and was asking questions. So it felt very much like a juggling act. Like I, I, I felt like I needed to make a choice between one or the other. So it's just over a year ago now, I, I made my mind up, okay, I'm going to choose to go freelance. Um, it was hard making that choice. And so what I did is I spoke with my boss, I sat down with him and uh, I, I handed him my notice. And I'd been with that company at that point for about eight years, mm. seven years, something like that. And the first question my boss asked was, would you consider going part-time? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> my gut reaction was, uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so what we agreed was that I would stay, I would stay with the company um, for three days a week and I would focus on Logo Geek for two days a week. And I've been doing that now for about a year and a half. That's, uh, that's really cool. I mean, how did you... The podcast obviously is a recent addition to what you're doing with Logo Geek. So, so maybe tell me about how between those days, what your, you know, average work week looks like as far as how much time are you heads down making things and designing stuff versus doing social or building a podcast or blog post for, for Logo Geek? Wow. Okay. Um, I don't feel that there's a specific structure to this, but I'll try and explain. So Monday to Wednesdays is blocked out. Um, that's working for the agency that I mentioned. The rest of the time is pretty much free to work on um, Logo Geek. So I tend to try and block in my calendar Thursdays and Fridays out. And um, like over the space of the month, I, I tend to book in like one logo project a week on thursdays i do my sketchbook work on fridays i'll vectorize the artwork finish off and create the um, the presentation if i need to stretch into the weekend i've got that time as well if needed in terms of uh, like my social media management i kind of do that on and off like every day like i've i've kind of created it as a routine, so like for example, whilst I'm eating my breakfast, I generally have my phone there and I'm playing around with it, you know, uh, looking on blogs, basically looking out for any interesting uh, resources. And um, it, it takes like two minutes to share something. So my my social media, I do that as and when I've got you know a spare moment. So it might be in the morning, 
whilst I'm having breakfast or it might be at like um, lunch when I'm when I'm eating basically it's just at old times on the day when I feel like managing it mm-hmm. as for the podcast uh, the podcast I was very fortunate that I've been able to get sponsorship for it so from a financial point of view is is kind of allow me to block out um, certain times so something like um, an interview I'm sure you know this yourself there's like a number of steps that you need to take. So for starters, you need to um, invite the guest. So that can be an email and, um, you know, say like on my Thursdays, which I blocked out for sketchbook work, I, I don't spend the entire day doing that. I, I find it useful to set aside an entire day because sometimes I get to a point where it's like, I can't think of anymore. I'm going to have a break. I'll do something else. So it might be at that point when I'll like invite um, someone to be a guest. In terms of the interview itself, it's normally about an hour. I mean, obviously, there's some preparation that needs to be done as well. So you need to, like, prepare questions and so on. Um, again, I'll fit that in on my, my Thursday sketchbook day. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have a set routine. It's just whenever I got to a point where it's like, I can't think of anymore, I'm going to do something else with it. And, you know, I find doing something else generally helps me think of other ideas. As for the actual editing, at the moment, I'm doing it all myself. Um, so, uh, for example, I, I generally block out in my diary like a whole day and I'll make that day just for editing that podcast. And because I do have the sponsorship for it, I can justify doing that. And what I'll do is in terms of like my logo projects, I'll just put them around it. Um, so, yeah, that, that's pretty much how I work. And I'm trying to keep it very simple and um, doing it that way. It just stops me feeling like overly stressed about everything. I, 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 I had a point when I first started out where I was trying to do like one project in one day and it became quite overwhelming. So splitting it over a number of days, it just makes it so much easier to manage. How is it that you think you got sponsorship for your podcast from the beginning? The, the way that I um, approached it is that I, I went... I went in based on like email numbers. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> there's been quite a lot of things that I've been doing as part of um, Logo Geek as it's been growing. And uh, one of my main focuses has been like social media. So um, you might have noticed like on Twitter, I have an audience of around 87,000. And that's a substantial audience. But mm, yeah, I tend to, I listen to a lot of, podcast and I've heard it mentioned on, on a number of marketing podcasts that you need to like own your own platform. So there's this risk that at some point Twitter might not be the, the, the main thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I do feel like that point to some extent is already coming. And um, you know that there's gonna be a time when I've invested like years into this thing built this audience and then suddenly it turns into nothing so one of the recommended ways of kind of keeping that audience is to get their emails so if you can get email addresses that's probably the best way to keep in touch with people because if twitter was to vanish and um, everyone be on something else if i got their email address i can just drop them an email and say i'll just so that you know i've got this Thing on this platform if you want to sign up go here mm-hmm. so the way i've been able to get emails is um by creating like a, a free uh ebook so i got a 50 logo tips from the pro ebook 
And um, that's totally free in exchange for an email address. And, and with that, I've been able to build up uh, um, over 10,000 emails. Oh, that's great. So with my, with my email to a sponsor, I've been able to say, I've been able to bring up all these figures. So I've been able to say, okay, I've got uh, X number of Twitter followers, X number of Facebook followers, uh, X number of email addresses and so on. So I've been able to go in that picture and, and agree that there will be certain spots on the podcast and also they will be featured in the show notes and they will also be featured in the emails for each podcast as well. And I think it's that side of it that's been able to get me um, a sponsorship from day one without any physical evidence that I've done anything. Yeah, that's, that's a great a great tactic to, to be offering, you know, we've got two platforms for you, Mr. Sponsor. And if you sign on, you're get, you're going to get it from both sides. So that's, that's a really smart, smart approach. We have um, yet to do sponsors for our show and also haven't necessarily pursued any. We had one or two friends that said, Hey, what if we sponsored your show? What would that look like? And we've talked about it a little bit, but never really pursued anything. But I, I like that idea a lot. I think it's worth doing um, because obviously you're spending quite a lot of time on this. And if you've got people that are editing it, you obviously need to pay them. Um, and I, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I've got no issue with those people sponsoring, um, you know, get, getting sponsors on there. I think it's smart to start monetizing these things. And, uh, you know, it gives you something so that you can start investing more into it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, even if you take the the dollar value out of the sponsorship, I feel like there's um, there's also a, a level of credibility that's lent to your show that to know that you have a major sponsor, you know, a known brand name or a known technology platform, which which is really cool. So, congrats. Yeah, thank you very much. So, at this point, Logo Geek, your you know half of your gig is, yeah. is just you, right? So do you, do you see a future in which you'll scale up and staff up or do you feel like um, your long-term plan is to stay solo? I put a lot of thought into this. I mean, personally, I, I like thinking of long-term goals and personally, I, I don't really like the idea of uh, needing to manage a business. I don't really like the idea of having the, the the stresses of needing to bring in X amount of money to pay these 10 mm-hmm. people. So personally, I'm quite keen to keep it very small. Um, just me, be selective of the projects that I work on. I think it's worth noting that here today, it isn't actually just me. I've, I've got someone that is helping me with um, emails. Is is a friend of mine, but they're acting as like a virtual assistant. Um, because I, I'm fortunate to be in this position where I have very good, um, uh, like if you search on Google, you can find my website. So anyone that's looking for a logo in the UK, they generally come across my website. So I'm getting, I mean, it's not huge numbers, but per day you can get about 10 pretty good leads. And, um, as I mentioned, I can only really take about between four and six projects on a month without being overworked. So I've got someone, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I'm paying them a percentage of the project as as they bring them in. Um, and they're, you know, they're very happy with that because um, they're just doing it on like a part-time basis. But I'm able to pay them, which helps me to get back to everyone that's getting in touch. And I don't need to stress about my emails. I can just focus on focus on my my projects basically. And it allows me it allows me to maximize my time. And um, you know, sometimes because of that, I'm able to like bring I'm able to work on an extra project um, and bring in a you know a little bit more money in each month. Yeah, that's fantastic. When it comes to clients, I'm curious, you know, as you've been doing the the freelance thing here for a little bit, and I'm sure with insights of what your agency employer has done as well, I'm guessing you've got some opinions on on how that's worked. Like, what do you think in your mind makes for a really great client? I generally think a good client is one that has a vision. Like I would say like over the last year, I've had about 50 to 60 projects and the best clients have been those that have a very clear plan and they know almost exactly what they want. Um, and what I can bring to the cards is I can A, bring their idea to life, but I can also kind of make more of it. So one of the best clients that I've had, um, yeah, she she came in with so much, like literally she had a plan for everything. And um, it was very interesting learning about her business, about her product, all of her plans. I can't talk too much about it because I signed an NDA for this particular project. Sure. Um, but it was fascinating learning about her company and hearing her ideas. Like she she had quite a clear vision and she came to me with all these really nice like images of, of the, the style and the control that she wanted. And that meant that, you know, when I came in, I had quite a clear goal. And that really helped me so that, you know, presenting ideas. I, you know, I know that she would probably agree one of them and, and she did. Um, she, so from that side of it, she was a very good client, but also like she paid quickly and um, she was well aware that if every time she came back with feedback, she would ask me, am I paying you enough money? She kept asking <laughs> that. So from that side of it, I can't complain. That's a good client. Um, but generally, like I said, the best clients are those that are really passionate about their business and, you know, really care about their identity and, and you know, have like a, a clear goal. And I, I found the worst clients not that I've had that many that have been really bad, but the worst clients have been those that they got an idea for their business, but they don't really have any um, like long-term goals and they, they don't really have the passion for it. You know, that's, they're the type of client that are more like, oh, I know it when I see it. Mm-hmm. And I just find those clients, they're, they're not easy to work with. You can show them something and, you know, there's a part of you inside that is feeling like, I don't know if she's going to like anything that I've done. And I hate that. <laughs> I, I hate going to a client, spending a lot of time on it, you know, putting your heart and soul into this work to then sit down with them and have this seed of doubt in your mind that you don't know if they're going to agree it or not. So maybe outside of the afterwards, the I'll know it when I see it kind of attitude, is there anything for you that maybe in those initial conversations 
is a red flag to you when you've got, you know, these clients reaching out to you on the internet that you've not met before and they're just finding you from Google? Like, how do you know when this is bad, stay away? Okay. Um, to be honest, I, I find it very easy to spot from the outset. There, there was a point on my website where I, I took inquiries through quite a long, uh, quite a long form. Um, so I'd ask like all of the questions up front and, um, I decided, uh, to experiment with a very simple form. So literally, you know, a, a form as simple as entering your name, your email address, and then tell me a little bit more about the project. So that question, tell me a little bit more about the project, someone that's well organized, someone that's ready, someone that's got very clear, um, vision and um, idea in mind, they're going to give you information. They're going to tell you about their business. Um, they're going to tell you what type of thing they're, they're looking for. You know, they're, they're going to be they're going to be ready to get in touch with people. Mm-hmm. So you compare a nice long email that's probably like a thousand words with someone that comes in with, "I need a logo. It's for a such and such business." So I've got to this point now where, okay, those people that are writing like five words, they might potentially be a good client. But when I'm getting, like I said, like 10 emails a day, those people, I'm just ignoring them. Like I'm pushing them to one side that as far as I'm concerned, they're not worth getting in touch because if they don't have the time or energy to send a good inquiry at the beginning, I don't see how they're going to put any time or effort into the project ongoing. Yeah. So that's, that's basically how I would look at it is that that initial first contact is a good indicator for how good of a client they're going to be ongoing. <laughs> well, I, I think if maybe in uh, in the UK parlance that if they couldn't be bothered to write an email, then, you know, maybe maybe there's not somebody that you should spend time with. Exactly. Where would you say your best clients come from? Are are they re- from referrals and past clients or people you've worked with in, in a previous life? Or do you find that they are people who see your work or read your posts or listen to your podcast and then want to work with you? Where, where do you think those, those best connections come from? That's a really interesting question. I mean, to be honest, it, it's really varied. Um, like one one of the best clients that I, I had in the last year was actually someone uh, I was sharing a co-working space with. You know, I we wasn't friends as such, but we got to know each other and, and we got to see what each of us was working on mm-hmm. um, over like a two or three week period. And um, yeah, we swapped information and he got in touch and he was a fantastic client. So, I mean, meeting people in real life, I do think that's one of the best ways because you're they're, they're able to get to know you. They're able to see your your passion into your work. Um, so that there's that side of it. But I've had some really good clients come through um, just general inquiries online. Like I'm I'm not 100% sure specifically where they're coming in, but normally really good clients they've read some of my blog posts or they've had a look at my social media or my Facebook or something like that. They've they spent some time to um, research me and what I'm doing, and you know, seeing all these things spread across the internet. 
it's been enough to impress them to actually um, come to me. So, you know, when, when it does come to online, they have spent some time to actually do that research. But I would say a high percentage of my really good clients have come through Google. But there has been that one or two, you know, where, where I've met them in real life, where they've been fantastic clients too. Yeah, I think um, in my experience as well, when when somebody comes to you and they say, you know, they either quote you or they reiterate something they read, I think that shows evidence of somebody who's really engaged in the process. And I remember seeing a statistic here in the last few years that in the business to business sales cycle, that something like 60% of the decision is already made before that prospect ever reaches out to you. So knowing that they're at that point when they reach out regardless and knowing that they've read your stuff and that they're admiring it and they're, they have feedback for you or questions. I think that that definitely bodes well. So I I definitely agree with that statement. So I realize you're, you're still early in your, in your freelance career proper, but, but I'm sure this has been true in your agency life as well. So I'm curious, like when you, when you hit a rough spot or something doesn't go exactly as you want, or something as simple as you just don't know what to do on the next project, or you're looking for inspiration um, what are some of the ways that that you work through that, and what what are kind of your go tos to shake that off and move on? Oh my god, that's that's a really hard question. I mean, I'm, I'm going to answer this in, in two ways. In my, um, I guess I'm going to call it my my day job, um, my my part time day my part time day job. Um, basically, I'm working on web based projects. And um, to be honest, I, I very rarely hit a, um, a brick wall. And I think that the reason for that is because with web, it's quite easy to spend a little bit of time looking at different websites and picking up styles from each of them and kind of blending some, something together. Like it might not be the best thing, but if you need to get something done within you know, a two hour time frame, you have to get it done. So um, kind of hitting a roadblock, uh, you know, like a creative block and sitting there for like an hour. I can't really do that. I can't justify that time. I need to just get on with it. So what I've been able to do um, is during my time in that job, I've got templates and I've got kind of benchmark work that I will look at. So I know that if I take one of those templates and I like, um, you know, source good imager, images and create a specific layout. It might not be the most creative thing that I've ever done, but it generally gets the job done and it's it's good enough for the client to agree it. I know that's a bad way of looking at things, but I, I do think, you know, if mm-hmm. my 90% good is probably going to be good enough for the client. So the way that I see it in that job, I need to, I've got this, I get, I've got a job and I need to get the, the, the job done. So I get it done to like, if I think, yeah, that's good enough. And the client agrees, as far as I'm concerned, that's, you know, I've got the job done. I've done my bit next project. So I'm very much like, how would I say it? Like flipping pancakes to some extent. <laughs> yeah, I get it done. Um, so that, that's how I handle that side of it. In my personal day job, I, 
I do it slightly differently because anything I do is tied to me and I feel like I have more um, accountability for it being successful. And I think something like a logo, it's so important that if I, if I don't do the job correctly, I feel like I've let the client down. And especially if they're a good client and, you know, a nice person and they have this amazing business, I want to do a good job. So I do hit roadblocks. <laughs> um, and I, I, I think to some extent the, the process I have really helps kind of help me get through those tough patches. So I think it's worth briefly talking about my process from a high level um, point of view. I begin with a set of goals. So um, what I do is I, I send the questionnaire, I send the questionnaire to the client. Based on um, their answers, I will create something kind of like a tick list. So I've got this list of goals that I'm trying to achieve. I then start with sketchbook work. And then once I've done the sketchbook work, I'm moving to illustration and so on. But that sketchbook work is the most important thing. Like it's the sketchbook work where I'm exploring different ideas. So based on my goals, I tend to write down all these different keywords. So for example, if I'm working on a logo for a um, cycle company, for example, I might put like bikes in the middle and then branch out all these um, associated um, words that come to mind. So for example, off the top of my head now, uh, tires, roads, um, speed, energy, like all these words come to mind. And what that helps me is picture different things. So that what I mentioned, I, I just said energy, that makes me think of different colors. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking of oranges and reds, you know, things quite energetic. Um, also writing specific keywords like roads, tires. Maybe I could play with something there. Like maybe that maybe there's some idea in there. So what I do is whilst whilst I'm thinking about this, anything that comes to mind, even the most crappy idea, I'm just gonna draw it. And I found it very, very surprising that you know when you think when you really think and you start imagining what something could be, I've, I've learned that those visions are actually very foggy, even though they look um, very three-dimensional in your mind. I don't know if it's just me, but I've, I found when I start zooming in on stuff in my, in my imagination, I realize that thing isn't actually there. I can't see it. So I found that if I've got an idea, it might not be fully formed in my mind. So even if it's a rubbish idea, I get it down on paper. And sometimes it's like, oh my God, there's something there. You know, like the moment you see it on paper, you start to see all the details and you realize, okay, that exact specific idea, that, that's not right. But there's something there that I couldn't see. So mm -hmm. I prefer to think on paper. So thinking on paper, when, when I am totally stuck, that's what I'm doing. I'm just kind of scribbling. Like No one's going to see these scribbles of paper. But you know, somebody who might like to see those scribbles of paper, I think, as you're 
thinking about other pieces of content you produce in the future. You know, maybe it's not showing every project and every process, but um, I think the sometimes how the sausage gets made is a really interesting thing, even though you wouldn't want to expose that all the time. I will be honest. I've, I've shared um, quite a few of those pages. Oh, great. Um, yeah, I, 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 I find what I do when I when I do get stuck, I'm doing that. But then also I might open up Google and, and, and start searching for images um, based on those keywords. So these keywords are really useful. So if you start like bikes, it's, it's related to roads. I do some search, searches for roads and I'm like, oh, that's cool. Kind of goes into the horizon. Maybe I can play with that. It, it just helps me think of these different ideas. So I might have one page. And there might only be one good thing on that page and, and the rest is just garbage. But getting down everything, even the garbage, has really helped me to, you know, find find the best ideas and and evolve those. And um, like I said um, earlier, because I'm doing my sketchbook work over over an, over an entire day, what I can do is when I do get stuck, I'll just go and do something else for a bit. And I was working on a project last week and I thought I kind of exhausted all of these ideas, but I, <laughs> I went, I had some food, came back up and I'm like, oh my God, I didn't see that. And um, this thing that I, I kind of sketched down, that was the origins of the final Lego. <laughs> so it's fascinating what can come out of just sketching down anything and, and like taking a break and you know make making sure to have time to 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 let those ideas kind of boil i think that's really important to do yeah i love the idea of um just kind of letting things cook for a little bit that sometimes you come back to something and and uh even though you may have dismissed it early or or even maybe you fall in love with it early and then you walk away and then you come back and realized now that was i was really onto something there yeah i mean it's like i was saying like if there, there are two sides to this i i think sometimes you just need to get the job done and you need to fit within within a certain type time frame and in those situations i'm just going to get on with it so if i've got an idea that i think that's not entirely there but i'm just going to finish it off i found even in those situations it's like you know what that's actually pretty good but during sketchbook work, it wasn't quite perfect. But if I do have that extra time, I'm going to play and, and do something um, perfect. And, and with my own uh, freelance projects, I, I like to make time to do that. I think it's worth doing it properly. And for me, it's I'm in this fortunate position where my three-day-a-week job covers my living costs. So any money that I do make with Logo Geek is kind of like extra money that I that that I can use for like save that that basically I can I can save that up. So I'm in this very fortunate position where if I want to spend extra time on that project, I can. It doesn't really matter because it's not so much about finishing this project on time to get the next one in. It's it's more of a passion project. Um, so if it needs it, I'm going to spend more time on it. I'm, I'm not too worried about that. So outside of that part, is there, is there anything else that has 
maybe surprised you or opened your eyes to freelancing that you, you weren't expecting going into it? Anything that's unexpected? I think for me, it's, it's kind of allowed me to learn so much more about myself personally. Um, like I never imagined going freelance and I always felt slightly uncomfortable about the idea um, because I found when I do work at home, I do struggle. Um, but what I found is, uh, <laughs> I kind of, kind of, kind of um, explain to you how I was thinking freelance would be. So I work really hard in my day job. I've always worked really hard. Like um, I don't need mm -hmm. a manager sat over me to tell me what to do. I'm just going to sit down. I'm going to go through my task and I'll go through one, flip next one. And I can get through so much work. And if I need to work, like if, if my boss comes to me and go, Ian, I need this done within the next hour. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll get on with that. And I, you know, I'll find ways to kind of get to that point. So I imagine that when I go freelance, the way it's going to be, I'm going to wake up at six, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to sit down that morning, get all these new projects. Um, I'm going to get through loads of projects. I'm going to write blogs. I'm going to do all this stuff. But <laughs> the, the, the reality was when I started, you know, when you, when you feel a little bit tired in the morning, <laughs> And when you have to go to work and you kind of got this expectation there that you need to be, be there by a certain time, I found within that, within those first few days, I let, I let things slip a little bit, like oh, mm -hmm. stay in bed for another half an hour, it's fine, as long as I start by that time. It's very easy to get into these terrible habits where you can be quite lazy. And it really does take real, um, real focus and real push to actually keep growing things like the 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 reality is that absolutely nothing happens as a freelancer unless you sit down and make it happen mm -hmm. so i know that sounds stupid but that was an eye-opener for me to start learning about myself that even though i've worked very very hard in this role the moment i kind of have um you know, this accountability taken away, I have this terrible habit that I can actually be quite lazy. So I'm having to really force myself to keep, um, to keep going, even at those times, you know, when you do feel a little bit tired or a little bit worn out, or, um, you know, if, if you need to deal with a client that's not particularly happy, those things are quite hard. And, and when you work for an agency, there's, you know, you're surrounded by these people that can kind of help you in these situations. But when you're on your own, it's kind of like you're the only person that's accountable for it. So, I mean, that's probably obvious to a lot of people that are listening, but I found freelancing a lot harder than what I imagined. And within my first few months, people were asking me, how's it going? And I was honestly, I was actually saying, I don't think I like it. I'm doing really well. Like I'm making a lot of money, but I hate it. I feel really stressed. I feel worn out. Mm -hmm. I was booking in more projects than, than I could realistically handle. Um, I was working all hours of the day and, you know, like I said, I, I quickly learned, okay, this isn't all about money. I need to 
manage my time carefully. I need to make sure to take breaks. So it's it's the reason why my 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 plan for each week is very like it, it's not too structured. I just make sure that okay, that project is going to be done by Friday. I have those two days to do it, and then anything else I can kind of like fit in around it as and when I can. I try to keep my week very lean, um, and doing that is kind of it's allowed me to have my my life back and my time and it's it's allowed me to be more happy so i think my biggest lesson has been that everything is on my back and i need to make sure that i keep an eye on how things are going and that you know if i do get to a point where something's not right it's down to me to sort it you know i know um we could we could probably talk about process and clients and all these things for another hour, but, um, just so we can, <laughs> um, eventually let you get back to your, your work here. Maybe we can jump to a couple of these quick questions. One of my favorite things to ask designers is what they're most obsessed with. So th- regardless of if it's design related or just something in life or a hobby or whatever, I'm curious how you would answer that. What you're, what you think you're most obsessed with right now? I kind of know this question's coming and I've been thinking about it a lot and uh, it's kind of a cross between two things, either <laughs> Game of Thrones, which is just finished, or <laughs> Star Wars Episode 7. <laughs> I'm a big, um, I'm a big uh, Star Wars fan and I have been um, from, you know, age 10 or whenever it was when I watched the first film and I can't wait for the next film. I keep watching the little spoilers and I, I know next month uh, there's a, a new mm. toys that are coming out and I can't wait to see them. And I'm sure a trailer's due out soon. Um, so yeah, at the moment it's a cross between Game of Thrones, but I think because Game of Thrones just wrapped up, I'm, I'm now ready for the, the next Star Wars film. <laughs> Good answers. If, and if you haven't already, you should listen to the, uh, the interview we did with Joe Kalinowski at Content Marketing Institute just a few weeks ago. And at the end of the episode, he talks a little bit about his pursuit of a particular line of Star Wars figures. So maybe you'll be into that as well. I've, I've got a few um, Star Wars figures. I, I used to uh, collect them all and kind of like, as a kid, I, I had them all mm. all over my wall. Um, but now <laughs> Uh, this is gonna um, it's gonna shock a lot of really big Star Wars fans, but uh, a few years ago I got to the point where I was like, you know what, this figure's really cool. I'm gonna take <laughs> it out of the packet. <laughs> I, I and now I got it on my shelf, and I do not regret doing that because I think these newer figures they got no value anyway, and it looks so much cooler on my shelf yeah. outside of the box. Um, but <laughs> for that moment, opening it up, I'm like. Is it right doing this? <laughs> so I conflicted. Keep it in packaging. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, I've I've always loved um, Star Wars, and even now, I've mm-hmm. I've still got like figures on my shelf. Um, like it's, I've got a shelf at the back of me. It's it's full of like loads of logo books, and then like I've got little figures of uh, like Mario and uh, Lord of the Rings characters and like uh, Stargate SG-1 and all these different things I've kind of loved growing up. 
And uh, yeah, I, I tend to go through phases where I'm slightly obsessed with some kind of um, TV show. Like about a year ago, it was Westworld. Um, recently, it's been Game of Thrones. And now, yeah, I can't wait for the next Star Wars film. Excellent. Excellent answers. So maybe one other quick question for you is, as you've worked in the agency world now and you've done the freelance thing and you're running a podcast and a blog and the social presence, I'm curious what is either your favorite piece of advice that you've received or perhaps your favorite piece of advice to pass along to aspiring or young designers or new people in the creative industry? Okay, there's a a couple of things that come to mind um, from my very first job. I remember I was sat down, I was working on this uh, new brochure um, for a new range of drapes and uh, uh, like a few days earlier, I'd, I'd spent some time at home and I've learned all these new things and I wanted to try everything out on this one piece. And um, yeah, so I was layering it all up and everything. For me, it looked awesome. And then uh, the CEO came, he, he came up, like he, he always had this morning routine of um, kind of coming around with um, saying good morning to everyone. It used to be quite a nice thing that he did. And he came up to me and went, Ian, just because you can doesn't mean that you should. And I like, oh. <laughs> so it made me realize that sometimes things need to be very simple. And especially for younger people, when you, when you start learning these tools, there's so much cool stuff that you can do, but you don't need to do all of that on that one project. Just do what's right, for that one thing. So that's that's the first piece of advice that I got. And also um, another piece of advice was I, I always had this terrible habit that I like doing things the hardest way. So, for example, um, I used to do a lot of illustrations that involved using hands, kind of um, mm-hmm. handling the, these different products. And I would like to sit there studying my hand and kind of drawing it on the screen. And I got this advice from this one guy that's like, Ian, it doesn't matter how you get it done. Just get it done. Like if you need to go outside, mm-hmm. take a photo of that tree so that you can trace it, just go and do that, come back, finish it off, get it done. And it taught me rather than kind of trying to prove something to myself or trying to be like, you know, a fine artist, I just, basically took a picture of my hand, started tracing it. I got the job done in 20 minutes rather than two hours. So it just taught me that I could get things done so much faster if I found clever ways of doing that work. Like he also showed me at that, at that time that, um, I, th- I think it was a friend of his, he, he was a, a 3D animator. And this client paid him to do um, like the scene. So what what this guy did is he charged for the full work, but then he went onto this website, downloaded this stock image and got the, the, the job done much quicker. So even though he was capable of physically creating that 3D model, he didn't need to because someone already created it. And it's the same with I guess things mm-hmm. like you, a pair of scissors, like if you need a pair of scissors icon, you do not need to draw that again. 
it's been drawn 100 million times. You just need to do a quick um, Google search for scissors vector and you can find someone that's already done it. Like the, the only person that you're proving to yourself that you're able to do it is, is you. So if you can find a quicker way to get something done, do that and, and you know, don't waste your time. It's not worth it. Yeah, I think that's good advice. Well, it's been a pleasure learning about you and your process. Um, maybe you could tell our listeners where they can find all things Logo Geek related or connect with you online. Yeah, sure. Okay. So I think the best place to go to start off with is my website, uh, which is at logogeek.uk. Um, you can find my my podcast on there. And um, yeah, if you want to find me on Twitter, again, it's um, Logo Geek. But it's on, on Twitter, it's at logo underscore geek. Um, and I've also got a community on Facebook too, which is uh, rapidly growing. And that's called Logo mm. Geek too. So just search Logo Geek anywhere and you'll, you'll find me. So the moral of the story is Google Logo Geek. <laughs> Google Logo Geek and you'll find me. Exactly. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, you know, knowing that you've, you've had all this success with your first six episodes, bringing in some, some great guests who I'm going to go back and listen to myself, a couple that we've, we've had on the show here too, and such amazing success, um, with Twitter and everything else that you're doing. Maybe we'll hear circle back in the near future to do, uh, do an episode too. Oh, for sure. I'd love to. Okay, thanks, John. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, Ian, thanks for uh, joining us and thank you for being obsessed with design. Okay, guys, that's episode number 81 in the books. For all of today's show notes, head over to obsessedshow.com. If you have not noticed, we have recently added all the podcast recordings to the episode. So if you go to Obsessed Show, click on episodes, click on the name, scroll down, and you can find the recording right there in the blog post alongside all the show notes. And if you have not, please do me a favor, subscribe on iTunes to Obsessed Show. And while you're at it, leave us a rating and review to help other people find the show. Obsessed with Design is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon, a branding agency in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. And of course, our show is always edited by the talented Gen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company, Visit BrassyBroad.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>